0: Amen. It's one of my favorite hymns. We had that hymn sung at our wedding. Uh, how many of you grew up Baptist? How many of you grew up in a Baptist church? A lot of you didn't. Yeah, okay, but it's about three-fourths of you probably. I, I, I'm kind of like Paul. When Paul said that he had the most Jewish bona fides, right, he was like a Jew of Jews, he said. I, I think I'm like Baptist of Baptists, okay? I, I think I have all the Baptists. Uh, I didn't, the only thing I didn't do is go to Baptist seminary, which I'll get to that in a minute. But my my dad went to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which was at the time the the most respected Baptist seminary out there in the the world, really. And then he served as an associate pastor before getting the call from the Baptist Sunday School Board here in Nashville. That was a big deal, and he got to, to move his family to Nashville and I started working at the board in the 70s, and then uh, I was born a few years later here in Nashville, which is the buckle of the Bible Belt, and we attended Oak Valley Baptist Church, which was pastored by former youth pastor from this church, Jim Gallery, who baptized me at the age of seven at Walker Memorial Baptist Church in Franklin. And then I went to First Baptist Nashville for my youth group days, the flagship of Baptist churches here downtown Nashville next to the arena on 7th and Broad. And then I I decided uh, kind of a different path to to go to Beeson Divinity School. And we have some pictures, I think, Gabe, from earlier maybe from, from Beeson. Beeson is an interdenominational, even though it's at Samford, which is a Baptist school, it's an interdenominational evangelical seminary. And before I went to Beeson, I basically thought that if you were Methodist or if you were Presbyterian or if you were Lutheran or Anglican, you might as well be Buddhist. It was something just totally foreign to me. And you must have it wrong because we were Baptist and we were the real Christians. But Beeson taught me that the communion of saints is so much bigger and so much wider than any one denomination. There's a beautiful painting in the top of the dome at Beeson Divinity School. Have you seen it, Lauren? You've been there. It's Jesus looking over the congregation and all these martyrs and saints from the past. You have Martin Luther here and you have Calvin and you have Zwingli and you have great preachers like George Whitfield, and, and you have women like Perpetua and other saints throughout the, the centuries. And then this, this cloud behind the face of Jesus with his nail scarred hands. You can't really see it closely, but those are faces and they represent the cloud of witnesses that I just read from Hebrews chapter 12 that are watching and cheering us on from just behind the wings that are rooting for the body of Christ now. And that just broadened my perception of what church is and what church could be and should be and that all who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, all who believe on him by grace, through faith in his death and resurrection, are part of our great communion of saints, the family of God around the world. And what really solidified that for me was when I got to travel overseas and work with a church in Australia that was mostly second generation Chinese immigrants who were my brothers and sisters in Christ. It just opened up the world to me. And I I pray that we as Woodmont would be a big family church, that we'd understand that our brothers and sisters across the street at Woodmont Christian and and at Trinity, uh, at uh, uh, the uh, the Calvary Methodist Church and at St. Paul down the road, those are our brothers and sisters. As long as they proclaim the name of Jesus as risen Lord and Savior, that we are part of the same communion. That's important to remember that around the world this morning, the body of Christ gathers To worship the risen Christ as Lord. That's important for us to understand. All right, today, one of our last three sermons in the mighty book of Isaiah. You've lasted this long. Hang in there. You've only got three more weeks, and then we're going to jump into Advent, which is crazy that it's already here. And then we're going to start a new series on the letters of Paul next year. So if you've been waiting for some practical kind of Pauline epistles, you got your, your wish for next year. I thought you deserved a break after hanging in there through Isaiah this year. And we're going to look at a prayer today and, and talk about prayer I think most of us understand, right, that prayer is a vital component of the Christian life. The Bible says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And most of us know that prayer is something that we ought to be about, that we ought to be doing, but just in talking with a lot of us, I know that a lot of us feel like our prayer life is either cold or lacking or just non-existent. Maybe today you feel like your your prayers are just rote, just kind of routine. You're praying the same things over and over. Maybe you feel like your prayers just kind of hit the ceiling and, and don't really do anything. Or maybe you only pray when times are tough and when you're really scared and when you need something. One academic study of religion found that most people who professed to be Christians really saw God as a cosmic butler, they called it, Like when they needed something, they'd ring the bell and be like, oh God, I need this. Oh God, come quickly. Oh God, I need this. They only called on the Lord when they needed something. A lot of us don't really know how to pray. And and maybe you think it's something only pastors do or only super Christians do, but that's not true either. I have a friend who's not a Christian and he thinks we are psychos that we think we can make up stuff and talk to God directly and that He hears us and that it changes things? He thinks that's so weird and that we're a bunch of you know, just crazy people and I, I love this friend enough that he can say that to my face and, and we can still be friends. The truth is that there is no spiritual vitality apart from prayer, both personally in your life, individually and corporately as a church. Prayer is the lifeline that connects us to the power and presence of God. We do not, we cannot experience intimacy with the Lord apart from prayer. We have an amazing lady in our church who's been walking through a cancer diagnosis, gallbladder cancer, and as she navigates the journey, she's experienced a a new kind of closeness with the Lord. And I asked her if I could share something she texted me this week after uh, one of her chemo treatments, I could hear the genuine excitement and joy in what she was saying to me. She said, only three more chemo treatments? God is so good. This is a journey of trusting Christ in a way I've never experienced. I only thought I had a deep relationship with the Father. I see him so clearly. For her to say, I have three more chemo treatments, and in the very next breath, God is so good. That is the kind of faith that moves mountains. That's the kind of faith that informs prayer that is effective, prayer that, that is engaging and that calls down the presence and power of God. So the goal for today is to enhance our intimacy with the Lord in this kind of rich life-giving, mountain-moving kind of way that's authentic, where we know that he's good without maybe those of us who aren't going through a crisis right now. And what we're gonna see in our text for today in Isaiah 63 and 64 is a beautiful prayer that the prophet Isaiah lifts to the Lord. But think about all that we've learned this year, all that we've walked through the book of Isaiah, all that we've seen in this amazing book. Isaiah, the prophet, has been transformed by everything that he's seen and experienced over the last 63 chapters in writing this down. One of our amazing uh, Sunday morning life group leaders uh, has been working through this, uh, his class to study the entire book of Isaiah, and we've had a few classes that have done that. It's been incredible. And, He emailed me last week and he said, The feedback is that they've learned a lot about the nature and character of God. It's clear that his ways are not our ways, but that he can be trusted, that he loves us, and if faithful to his word, regardless of how we feel or act or rebel against him. And I feel the same way, honestly. I've learned a lot about the character and nature of God. And here's the thing, what we know of God changes the way we relate to him, doesn't it? This lady who's navigating cancer is learning more about who God is, and it's changing how she relates to him. It changes how she prays. Today, what we're going to see is the power of informed prayer. How gaining insight into the realities of God and the realities of our own lives transforms our prayer life. And a lot like Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer, when he taught his disciples to pray, we're going to see Isaiah teach us to pray. He gives us a model prayer, a prayer that's informed by all that he's seen and learned throughout this writing process. So our outline for today is called a model prayer prayer the power of informed prayer. So let's dive in with the first section, Isaiah 63, verses 15 to 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father." Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wonder from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while Our adversaries have trampled down your, we have not become like those who've, we've become like those over whom you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. This is where Isaiah feels we've come to. But in the first part of this section especially, he's acknowledging something crucial for how we pray. If we're gonna pray effectively, our prayers must be informed by who God is. That's the first blank in your, outline. We have to know who we're addressing, who God is. You know, too often we focus on ourselves. Even our prayers can become narcissistic. They become about us and what we can get out of them. But powerful prayer is theocentric. It's God-centered because it knows who God is. That makes our prayers centered on the one who is high and holy. In verse 15, we see that Isaiah acknowledges that God dwells in his holy and beautiful place. That's the same God that Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah chapter six in the throne room of heaven. How did he see God, You remember? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. That's the next blank in your outline. He was high and exalted, high and lifted up. Our God is totally holy. He's completely other than. He's utterly above all the common and profane things of this world. This is similar to how Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer, right? When he teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, who is exalted in heaven, whose name is hallowed, that means holy, that means completely set apart and consecrated in its perfection of beauty and holiness. That leads to the next point in your outline. Just like the Lord's Prayer, Isaiah also addresses God twice as our Father. I know that a lot of you had great dads. I love hearing stories about your dads. And I know know that plenty of you had not so great dads if they were present at all. And the reality is that all of our earthly dads fall woefully short of of who our good, good Father in heaven is. He loves his beloved children perfectly, disciplining us when we need it out of his mercy and compassion and great love for us. He lavishes the riches of his grace on us because he loves to give his children the best things. A sweet and wise lady in our church sent me a picture of her daily devotion. I asked her if I could use it. She said, yeah, just mention that it's a young lady who sent you this. Uh, it was Charles Spurgeon from this devotion and he's, he's been called the Prince of Preachers and he's just expounding on the Lord's Prayer in this beautiful, really tr- contrite way. He says, all true prayer must commence with the spirit of adoption. our Father, He says, there is no acceptable prayer until we can say, like the prodigal, I will arise and go to my father. I'm going to go to my dad. Then in verses 17 to 19, we see that God is sovereign overall, that he's in charge. Isaiah knows that God has been disciplining. He's been correcting his children by removing them from the promised land. He said, yeah, we had possession of that land for just a a little bit. It was awesome. And more importantly, though, that God has removed them not only from the land, but from his presence, from his power, from his his provision. Isaiah says, okay, I think it's been long enough now, God. He boldly says, it's time. So we see here that Isaiah knows that God is the one who's in charge, that we're utterly dependent upon him and what he decides to do. It's not about us, you know, committing to, being better, I've prayed that prayer before, I'll do better God, I'll do better next time, it's not what it's about. It's not about saying, I'm gonna go to church more, I'm gonna serve more, I'm gonna pray more. This is about surrender. It's about the posture of our hearts that we say to God, you are Lord, I am not. We must realize that God is sovereign before we can effectively engage in prayer. And that brings us to the second part of the outline, After we understand more of of who God is, we must also know more of what he's done, his mighty acts in the past. In the beginning of chapter 64, we see that Isaiah has learned a ton about all the amazing things that God has done and therefore can do again. Look at verses one to five A. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. After we understand of who God, God is, we, we learn of what he's done. And that leads us to pray, God, do it again. Uh, Ray Ortland, in his great commentary, he says the most important word in this whole passage is in verse one, the first word. Oh, Isaiah's passionately longing. For God to do these things again, he's crying out from the depths of his soul. Oh, he's broken down and desperate. He's he's saying, oh, that you would split the skies and come down. Oh, that the mountains would shake before your presence, your face upon them. Isaiah knows that God could do this at any moment because he's done it before. Isaiah knew the scriptures. He knew that in the time of Abraham, in the time of Moses, in the time of David, in the time of Deborah, that God showed up. That's the next point in your outline, that God's shown up in powerful ways, very effective ways. You know, when fire falls, it makes things happen. Brushwood is, is kindled, water boils. Isaiah longs for something to happen. He's praying that that God would come and change and transform people and all of creation by his presence, by dwelling among us. That's one of those bold revival prayers. God, we're asking to to see something that we can't fathom. God, we long for you to do something like you've done before. I read about uh, different revivals, Azusa Street and, and John Wimber, and I say, God, do that in Nashville. Lord, may it be so in our lifetime. Remember, this whole section of Isaiah is really focused on uh, God's renewal and revival of the world. Prayer is important because revival doesn't happen without prayer. Prayer is the necessary work that happens before God's transforming fire falls to do things that we can't even imagine There's an old hymn that we used to sing at Oak Valley Baptist Church when I was growing up, and I hadn't thought of it in years, but one day, old Calvin here comes walking through the doors on a Sunday morning with a grin on his face, and he's singing this song. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory, hallelujah, amen. You know the song? Hallelujah, thine the glory, Re. That was great. Well done. I got to be the music leader for a while. I feel like Bill Sherman up here singing. (laughs) Revive us again. The whole theme of that song is is they, they recount something great that God has done. And then in the chorus, they say, do it again. Do it again, God. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, thine the glory, revive us again. All glory and praise to the lamb that was slain, who's borne all our sin and cleansed every stain. Hallelujah, thine the glory, hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory, revive us again. Let's see it again, God. Let's do it again. And as Isaiah prays for God to show up again, and despite all the messianic prophecies that he himself had written down in his own book, he could never have imagined what God was gonna do, how he was gonna answer this prayer and show up by putting on flesh, by becoming like us in order to be the perfect spotless lamb and redeem us from our sins once and for all. Until then, we, we pray for revival. Because we know that one day he's coming back with a billion angels swirling in behind him. He's gonna come back and finish the work of redemption. So we pray for revival in our day, for God to show up in any way that he so chooses because we know it's gonna change everything. Next, we need an honest look at who we are. Look at chapter 64, verses 5b through seven. Behold, God, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Isaiah knows that apart from God and from his grace, we are drowning in our sins. We are drowning in our sins. That's the next point in your outline. We're in the same sinking boat of sin apart from God's grace. This is the the forgive us our trespasses part of the prayer, isn't it? Isaiah acknowledges our sin. That's what we call repentance. Repentance. Repentance is the first step in coming to God in the first place. The prodigal son didn't come to God until he was broken, until he realized that his wild living wasn't gonna cut it, isn't what he was meant to do. And he says, then I will arise and go to my father. Even though Isaiah and some others had been serving the Lord, they now felt like all the righteous deeds they had done were just discarded by God like an old rag. It's important to remember that, that being good, that our good works don't save us. It's never saved anybody. But it's also important to say that people take this verse too far. God does value our righteous deeds. Remember when Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus with the, the oil, the expensive ointment, and the disciples said, oh, she wasted it. And Jesus said, no, what she's done is a beautiful thing. When, when I see our, prayer, our, our food pantry workers praying with folks, that's a beautiful thing. When I saw Ron this morning getting a guy some clothes from the, the, the closet downstairs, it's a beautiful thing. When Ron was having a theological discussion with him, that's a beautiful thing. Just the last verse, Isaiah said in verse 5, that, that you meet him with joy who works Righteousness. Our, our righteousness is 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 great and beautiful god uses it and works through it but the point is that our righteous deeds don't add up to some kind of spiritual currency that we can use against god that we can use to buy god's favor or buy god's grace they don't make us right with god at all although he is pleased with them but ultimately all of our righteous deeds are like a pile of dry leaves that go away it's not about the deeds it's about hearts let's remember that and the rest of god's people have become spiritually inert they just are stopped they're just not moving they're no longer calling on him they don't love to worship him so they just stop sounds familiar these days <laughs> they no longer expect god to move among them to act in their lives they're unable and unwilling to rouse themselves it says to stir themselves to action and actually live as spiritual people again. This happens with us all the time, which is why we need to sing and pray, revive us again. We'd be wise to call ourselves out before God calls us out. That leads to the last section. Once we know who God is and what he's done and we know who we are and our propensity for sin, now an informed, effective prayer. This is the cool part is where we know who God and his people are meant to be together. Who God and his people are meant to be when working together. Look at verses 8 through 12. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? What, what Isaiah is crying out for here is it's more than just God is good and we're bad. What, what Isaiah is, is praying here is in the knowledge that, yes, God takes us just as we are, as a good and loving father, accepts his prodigal son back, but he doesn't leave us that way. He transforms us. He reshapes us into something beautiful and useful, you, you may remember, I hear people talk about it still four years ago, almost four years ago to the day, I invited my buddy Alexi Smith to come and sit here on the stage and, and make some pottery while I was preaching from Jeremiah 18. I think we have a clip of it, uh, Gabe. This is, this is the vase that he just shaped out of a five-pound block of clay. It was incredible to watch it take form, and, and Alexi, with his skillful hands, just formed this lump of clay. It was a rectangle to begin with, into something beautiful and useful. It was a pretty cool experience, but I kept getting distracted watching him. <laughs> I can't focus. Alexi is, is very talented as an artist, and I'm sure he appreciates it when someone purchases you know, one of his works to display in their home or in their office or something. But I bet he's even prouder when they serve a meal from it or, or when they pour a glass out of something he's created. Or, or, or when they are able to sip their coffee on a cold fall morning from it. Because he didn't put all that skill and effort into that piece just to be admired. The artist envisioned form and function. So it is with us. God transforms us, not so we can say to one another, boy, you sure are holy. <laughs> wow, you sure are being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's great, but it's more than that. He conforms us to the image of Jesus so that we can be effective in partnering with him in this world. Then in verse 9, we see another aspect of how God and his people relate to each other. He doesn't hold our sin against us. Isaiah prays that he wouldn't hold our iniquity, our sin against us. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, if you Lord kept a record of sins, who could stand? (laughs) We'd all be In that sinking boat but with you there is forgiveness we're going to experience the feast of forgiveness here at the altar in a minute as we uh, receive the mercy and grace that's offered to us through the cross of jesus christ next we see in verses 10 and 11 that god restores our worship he redirects our focus where it belongs Yes, the Babylonians had come in and burned the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. The temple was desecrated. And Isaiah cries out, we used to have all these awesome places to worship you. We used to have whole cities devoted to you. We had a beautiful temple, but now it's all destroyed. But it was never about the temple. It was never about these cities. It was about hearts. The people had lost their first love. They'd become like the pagans around them, just chasing after comfort and wealth and leisure. No regard for the next life or for what God's doing in this life. So God, in his mercy, again, allowed this calamity to befall his people in order to turn their hearts back to him. He helps us in the words of St. Augustine, rightly order our loves so that our values don't get all out of whack. He helps us to rightly order the things that we love so that our values aren't all out of whack. And finally, we have to embrace the reality that God is ultimately mysterious to us. God is ultimately mysterious to us. A lot of You guys and me sometimes aren't comfortable with this idea of mystery. We want things to be organized. We want them to be orderly and to make sense. We don't like it when things don't make sense. Jude, my oldest, sometimes will say, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Like it doesn't matter if it makes sense to you or not, just do it. Isaiah doesn't get it. He says to God, where are you? He boldly cries out in verses 11 and 12, when are you gonna come? and put a stop to these atrocities. And then I'm sure that he recalls what God himself had told him back in chapter 55. Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are infinitely higher than your ways. Trust me. If we're gonna be truly prayerful, truly spiritual people, we must embrace the fact that now we see through a mirror darkly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, but one day, like the saints who've gone before us, we will see clearly face to face. So will you join me today in renewing your commitment to prayer, in, in, in renewing your commitment to experience the intimacy with the Lord that only comes through prayer, If God's spirit is going to move here at Woodmont, if we're going to see brushwood start kindling with fire and water boiling, it's going to have to be through our prayer. If we're going to be effective in our mission to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to make disciples of all nations, it's only going to be accomplished through prayer. Prayer informed prayer that knows who God is, that knows what God's done and what he can do again, that knows who we are in our feeble human strength, that embraces the mystery of God and how we live and work together all by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have shown us how to pray that we don't have to figure it out for ourselves or, or reinvent the wheel, but that you've given us models for our own prayer lives. Gotta pray that we would pray big prayers, bold prayers, that we wouldn't hold back, that we'd pray like Isaiah prays, that when we are confused, that we'll cry out to you, that we'll pray with the same kind of passion and conviction that led Isaiah to say, oh, that you would rend the heavens, And come down. God, that's the ache in our bones today, that you would come and and be present with us in a way that brings renewal and revival and changes things. God, we long to see your Holy Spirit move among us in in the small things and in the big things, God. In in Ron getting a guy a pair of pants today and, and also and seeing hearts renewed and turned to you as they go from death to life through faith in you. As we see marriages healed, as we see children who come back to the faith, as as we see governments who begin to, to be selfless and get out of the way so that they can help us flourish as you would have us to flourish. God, we long to see miracles We long to see fire fall and and for your glory to be revealed so that people who were formerly against you would have no room to stand on, but would have to admit your glory and grace. Lord, as we approach this table this morning, may our hearts be close to you. May the, the sin that so easily entangles be thrown off in order that we may run from this place, the race that you have set out for each One of us. God, we do pray for those whose race is harder. People who have a race of of cancer right now. People who have a race of uh, broken families. People who have a race of not knowing where their next paycheck is going to come from. One lady in our church who doesn't know where she's going to live. God, we pray for her. God, we pray that whatever the race is marked before us, that we would leave this place, that we would be compelled through prayer each and every day to live for you, to live with you, to live by you, and to see your work among us, in us, and through us. We pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.